from the West Branch Studios in Davidson, North Carolina. Welcome to Dump the Clutch with your host, Brad Zimmerman. Good morning, kids. It's uh, June 17th, 2020. Uh, it's a little after 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, what a time we are living in. Um, the last time that uh, I put a podcast out uh, was with Mike Metcalf from Deck Leadership, which was May 8th. And um, I tried to stick to a, a pretty decent cadence throughout the past several months with the Dump the Clutch podcast, ultimately trying to get it to at least one post a week um, surrounding the world of motorsports on the business end, and then also interviewing people uh, from the sport that uh, don't necessarily get any light shined on them. Granted, my light isn't that big, but uh, still interesting to hear the stories from uh, behind the scenes and helping to educate people um, in a bunch of different topics. So that's that's always been kind of the drive of the podcast. Um, so May 8th came. Uh, I uh, was doing some work for a couple companies. Uh, I... Didn't have a ton of time to get the podcast recorded uh, after the 8th. And then, um, you know, obviously still dealing with the pandemic and shutdowns and, you know, things starting to come back online and kind of watching how the world was evolving. Uh, and then May 25th rolled around and um, uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis was murdered. And... I, I want to keep this uh, motorsports flavored. Um, uh, however, um, it's, it's hard to uh, not pay attention to what's going on. Um, I'm 46. Uh, in 1992, I uh, graduated high school um, and I, I did some research. I'm originally from Southern California. So 1968, the Watts riots, Watts riots broke out uh, racially charged uh, in 1992, in April of 1992. Um, uh, the L.A. riots stemming from uh, the Rodney King police beating, um, I think it was April 26th, that broke out. Uh, I remember that time very vividly. And now after the Floyd incident, uh, in 2020, um, more of the same. And if you look at the years in between from 1968 to 1992, that's a difference of 24 years. And if you look at 92 to now, that's a difference of 28 years. So unfortunately, uh, we are not learning from history and history is repeating itself almost on a similar um, pattern, which which is, um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, I, not to go off the rails here a little bit, um, I was originally uh, born in Southern California. I know, I know racism is, uh, in this country, it doesn't matter where you are, it's going to exist. Obviously, it's going to be more thick in certain areas of the country. Where I grew up um, was a very diverse 
um, part of the world, um, at least here in this country. Um, Orange County, not so much, but um, the surrounding areas. Um, uh, my mom's side of the family is European, white skin. Uh, my dad's side of the family is Pacific Islander, brown skin. So, you know, technically I'm a, I'm a biracial kid. Um, my grandfather was born in the Philippines and my grandmother was born in the Virgin Islands. Um, and, you know, my dad could pass for one of several different races. Um, and uh, I, I happen to have white skin. And so therefore I'm a white guy. And um, um, my 23 and me tells me otherwise, but, uh, and my kids 23 and me <laughs> tells them otherwise. Um, but we are, we are a white family and that puts us in uh, a certain part of um, a societal class that uh, we are not familiar with how a lot of people um, in the world that are not white um, have to deal with their lives on a daily basis until now um you know we at least i have seen you know throughout my years um racial injustice um it just for whatever reason um it's not fully sinking in and i think the i think the thing for me that um really drives it home is the word systematic uh, the systematic racism in this country, I think, is what needs to be uh, understood of what's going on. And um, I, I'm absolutely raising my hand. Uh, I was not the best student in school, but I had to go back and brush up on my history uh, to, to get clarification on things um, of what people uh, are using as fuel, sometimes using as fuel to drive their viewpoints. Um, so I definitely had to brush up on my history. Um, it's 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 been an eye opener, and um, I have um, uh, told my kids uh, to do the same. Um, it's I feel I was very fortunate where I grew up, and not only the family I grew up in, but also physically, geographically where I grew up. Um, you know, during the summers, I'd go to my grandmother's house and she lived in Long Beach. Um, I went to uh, school, uh, Cal State Los Angeles, which was in East LA. You know, whites were the minorities there. Um, other than being the minority, that was about it. There was never any issue with anything. Um, uh, really, the only thing that we hold true in this household is don't be an asshole. Uh, other than that, no problem. I don't care who you are. Um, you know, and then dipping over into the motorsports piece of it, um, growing up in Southern California at the time, most every team originated out of, you know, uh, about a 50 mile bubble from Pomona, California and, uh, drag racing was, was very diverse, like ridiculously diverse. And, um, you know, you could look at it as a negative or a positive, but the NHRA, in my opinion, never really got behind that because it never was an issue. It just, it is what it is. And that, in my opinion, that was great. Um, but, you know, they had a female win a championship in 1974 or six, right around there, Shirley Muldowney. You had men, women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, like you name it, people were racing. And I believe it was, 
it was like that because of the origin of the sport was from street racing, everyone's street race. And it wasn't necessarily who was behind the wheel. It was what your car looked like, sound like, and how fast it was. That's what it came down to. And I think that is one of the biggest differences between Southern California and North Carolina. Both are the hubs of um, cars for certain reasons, North Carolina for stock car racing. And um, you know, now more than ever, California is more of a lifestyle for automobiles. But in California, it's all about the car. And the, the personality driving it, that's, you know, that's an, an, that's an addition to it, but it's all about the car. I, people want to see their car. It's a car lifestyle. And out here, when it comes to NASCAR, um, it's not necessarily about the car. It's more about the, the, the driver and the personality driving it. So those are the two biggest differences I see. Anyway, um, it's, it's, it's been um, uh, troubling to see what's going on. Um, you're starting to see, you know, some positives come out of this. Um, hopefully, more positives will come. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do this topic justice just because there's so many things going on right now. I will tell you that, in my opinion, um, uh, there are criminals of every color. There are there are good cops. There are bad cops. There it's there are bad fans and good fans. There's there's all of it. But I think what's happening now is um, the, the negative minority is usually the loudest. And I think that's what people are reacting to. Now, I think really the only way to curb and to start to change the viewpoints on race in this country, race period, regardless of what the topic is, is education. Because uh, uh, racism and viewing someone a certain way purely based on the color of their skin is a taught or learned trait and that has to stop um, you know obviously you're probably going to have the older generation is probably going to show more signs of being racist and um, it's a generational thing that needs to get moved out well in, in my opinion, I, I think that needs to get moved out sooner than later, obviously. And I think it's up to the younger generation. So my kids who are in their teens right now is to, you know, grab this by the horns and, and really um, make efforts to be inclusive, inclusive of everyone. I see that happening at a younger generation. You know, there's the middle and older generation that are still... Um, antagonizing uh, the racism topic, in my opinion. And I think that needs to get addressed and be addressed. I think it is being addressed now. Um, will, will it be ever 100% perfect in the future? Probably not. Um, and that goes for everything and anything under the sun. But I think now, um, you know, people gave a lot of shit to the millennials for being lazy and, you know, the Gen Zs, you know, my kids' age. Um, you know, for not having any drive or motivation and getting up at 11 o'clock in the goddamn morning to do wake up and do nothing. This is their issue right now that's sitting on their lap. And from what I've seen, um, I think they're starting to understand that this is their moment in the sun for their generation. And I think they're going to start to make, make hay, make progress on um, changing something that 
should have been changed that was changed in 1865 but it never really was fully adopted by the majority maybe not the majority that wasn't adopted by certain people in the United States ever since then um, it's it, it's it's shameful to watch what's going on um, George Floyd was um, murdered on video um, he was, uh, you know, according to reports, he was uh, pulled over for um, someone called the cops on him for passing a fake $20 bill. Is that illegal? Yes. Did he deserve to get murdered for it? Absolutely not. Like the, the video is so disturbing to watch. Um, and when I first watched it, I didn't realize that there were two other people sitting on top of him for nine minutes, including with the cop on his uh, neck that ultimately killed him for almost nine minutes. Um, that's That was premeditated. That was done on purpose. Um, that, that maneuver is taught in the police force and it's taught to get the handcuffs on and then you, you put the person in the car and that's it them sitting on top of him for that long is is inexcusable obviously this is this is all fact now it's it's just it's um again i'm not going to do it justice um i uh i i'm i'm really um sometimes at a loss for words when i'm seeing what's going what's happening in our world and the fact that we're not learning from history um, and then you add on the political climate on top of it. You you add in the all the other political shit that I don't want to turn this into a political thing. Um, it's it's just unbelievable. And then you know uh, comments on social media um, in all different you know flavors. Um, it's it's uh, it's not social media's fault. Social media is just giving people the opportunity to speak in a public forum. And social media ultimately is people, and you really get to see, you know, how people are thinking and how people um, are taking in the information and how they're processing it. Um, I chose to not really put anything out either for the podcast. You know, I'm usually very active on LinkedIn. Um, I kind of laid low there. I'm just starting to come back on it now, and um, I was I was just watching, and I didn't I didn't honestly know what to say. Um, I don't, I kind of don't know what to say now, but um, I, I for sure don't want to sit on my hands and not say anything um, either way. And because um, I think that's just adding to the problem. So um, it, it's, uh, it's calmed down a little bit. Uh, it's definitely still a very tense issue. We're still living in a year that um, 2020 is a, <laughs> is a total clusterfuck. Um, and, you know, and, and to add things on top of it, my grandfather passed away um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, he had a great life. He was 97 years old. Um, and it, it's, this is, this is, this year is just uh, unbelievable. Things just keep piling on. And um, uh, it's, it's all just a little much sometimes. But anyway, back to racing. Um, again, there's been a lot of um, topics to be um, brought to light in the past couple months. Um, like I said, the last podcast we did was May 8th. That May 17th was uh, the first race back for NASCAR. That was the Darlington event they had down in South Carolina um, that ran at night. 
and in front of no fans. And a lot of people were expecting TV ratings to be big. Um, were they big? Yes. Um, so total viewers for Darlington for that first race back was um, 6.32 million total viewers. Uh, viewers are classified on television as uh, a household tuning in to a certain program for six non-consecutive minutes. So once a household is registered uh, under that pretense, it is classified as a viewer. Uh, and then the rating system goes into its hocus pocus, quite frankly, of generating a rating off of that. Ratings are then um, reported to both the rights holder and the advertisers, and um, uh, money is exchanged based on the audience that the TV show, in this case NASCAR, generated. Um, um, rights holders sometimes have the ability to make more money based on an audience that they get that is larger than anticipated. So um, at the upfronts every year, um, basically every major broadcaster will you know, show their TV schedules for the rest of the year, whether that's um, scripted television shows, unscripted shows, sporting events, special events, and they sell advertising against that. They sell advertising prior to the event happening. So the broadcasters will more or less guarantee an audience for advertisers to come in, not only guarantee the size of the audience, but the type of audience that's going to watch. And advertisers will pay money based on those audiences. That exchange of money uh, when it comes to motorsports and that advertising um, also goes to the rights holder, which is NASCAR, and that money helps get uh, funneled down to th at the team level. And at the team level, meaning uh, race purses. So it's, I wouldn't say it's a convoluted process, but it's, it's not a cut and dry deal. Um, and having worked on the team side, you never want to sell based on um, audience size. Um, because at least since I've been in the sport, um, the audience size has decreased almost every single year, except for, I believe, 2013. And um, you, you never want to sell on that. You, um, you want to sell on other things, and TV ratings is just really icing on the cake. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go into my soapbox on what you sell on and what you don't. Um, but I think TV ratings is the most, in my opinion, the most pure and honest form of attention that a show is going to provide. Um, it's still not perfect. I think the TV rating system and how they generate that TV rating is still a little shady at best. Um, the Nielsen ratings is still a projection based on a sample of homes that have a Nielsen box in their house. Um, unlike pretty much everything on social media, if you watch a video on YouTube, you are counted as one. Um, now, granted, a viewer on YouTube, I believe, is around four to six seconds, and then you're considered a viewer, as opposed to TV, where you have to go longer. However, 
Uh, I don't need to wait to see what the rating is for a video on YouTube or a like on Twitter or a like on Facebook. The, the top line data is already there. So um, when these TV ratings come out, it's usually 24 to 36 hours after the event because they have to go to their hocus pocus machine to <laughs> crank out a TV rating. So Darlington was uh, a little over 6 million people that watched it. The other interesting thing is um, right around that same time frame, they had the, um, uh, the uh, golfing event with uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And I thought that one was going to get a huge number, and that actually got like 5.5 million people. So... Um, I was kind of a little shocked there. Now, granted, they were playing in rain most of the day. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't watch golf. Um, you know, I, I, I watched Tiger. You know, when he was hot. But other than that, I, I really, I couldn't give two shits about golf. I did think it was interesting that they were miked um, during the process, and you can he kind of hear the trash talking. You can kind of hear how you know most of those guys are well past their prime. However, they're still ultra competitive, and they want to win at all costs. So I thought that was interesting. I thought the golfing event would bring more than the NASCAR deal, but um, I was wrong. And um, so then um, NASCAR has been... <laughs> cramming 10 pounds in a five pound bag, trying to get as many races in as possible, including Sundays, midweeks, Saturdays, you know, they're racing almost seems like every day of the week. Um, they have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, they've raced eight cup races since May 17th. And um, looking at the ratings there, they've, they've definitely fallen back into their normal, um, uh, comfort zone, you know, historically speaking, when it comes to TV ratings. Um, on the business side, I kind of view that as a little bit of a negative. Um, there's still really no other competition on television when it comes to live sports. Um, MLB looks like they're probably not going to play this year at all. Um, NBA is looking like they're potentially going to play an abbreviated uh, season uh, from Disney down in Orlando, all self-contained. Some players uh, don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, uh, soccer, still nothing. Um, you know, football obviously hasn't started yet. I think that might look a little different as well. So in, in, in my opinion, those numbers are, uh, they're okay. Um, I would I would have expected those numbers to be higher purely based on the fact there's nothing else on. So that that to me is a little concerning um, going forward. Um, you know, again, I think, uh, not to sound like a total dick, but I think what you're seeing if you have watched these past, you know, seven or eight races is you're seeing the closest thing to professional wrestling in NASCAR um, with these drivers wearing these masks and the TV personalities wearing a mask, and the when they do an interview pre-race, they have a microphone on a boom, and they put it in front of the driver's face so the boom guy's out of the way. Um, these racetracks are closed to everyone else, and there's no one else at the track, so I'm not sure why they're covering their face mask just before they get into a car that's going to emit 
toxic fumes. <laughs> um, so the, the, the best way to describe it, in my opinion, and this is why I kind of say it's like professional wrestling, um, I, I believe the TV broadcasters and the sport need to look like they're being responsible at every second that they're on television. These teams in the series, they have to race races in order to keep their financial model healthy and going. If, if NASCAR says, screw it, we're not going to race, teams will start to go out of business very slowly, one right after the other, because there's no money being generated. Teams and NASCAR will start to default on their contracts, and that's, that's worst case scenario. So... Um, they need to look like purely from an optic standpoint that they are being responsible every second the camera is on them. Um, NASCAR has made it very clear that if any crew member or anyone at the track during a racing event is seen not wearing a mask, they're going to be fined. I think it was, I don't know, like 50 grand or I don't know, something like that. So, um, they're taking it very seriously and they're going through all the hoops they need to go through in order to present a product that is going to be um, socially responsible and provide an entertainment level and keep the uh, flow of money coming in to the sport. So when I say they're, it's like professional wrestling, it's choreographed. The, the masks are there. Um, are they going to help? You know, I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, if 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 they allowed fans and and the grid pre-race was um, how it was used to be when it's literally like two thousand people crammed in a very small space, yeah, you should probably wear a mask going forward. But when there's no one on on pit road, literally no one on pit road, and they're wearing a mask, and then when they win the race, there's no one in victory lane, and they're wearing a mask. It's a little over the top. So um, that's my my rating spiel with uh, Cup, um, and then also the uh, IndyCar series uh, fired back up. I believe that was June sixth in Texas. Um, I. I was a little nervous right off the bat because Texas is a uh, very fast track and um, it's just a different world, in my opinion, when it comes to racing stock cars at Texas as, when it, as opposed to running Indy cars on Texas. Um, the, 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 the chances for drivers getting hurt at Texas is, is exponentially higher. Um, because of the speeds and because obviously the open wheel factor and you know the last thing you want to do is touch wheels and send someone into the fence at a high rate of speed um, in pra- I think they had one session of practice that day and and it was during the heat of the day and I think uh, Scott Dixon he averaged a lap that was like 214 miles an hour which is bananas um, now the interesting thing is that Firestone they have been shut down as well from the pandemic and they have not had a chance to test the car and their tire package with the new windscreen installed on the car. They've, they've obviously tested the windscreen uh, previously um, to make sure it was okay from a driver's standpoint, visibility wasn't Im- impeded. 
Um, you know, they had a fogging issue at one point, and they fixed that. So they, they got the screen dialed in, but they didn't necessarily have enough time to get everything else dialed in. Um, I don't know the specific weight of the screen, but it's obviously more weight that's being pushed down on a certain part of the car. And I believe Firestone was concerned about front right tires um, on an oval uh, with their wear pattern and um, how quickly they would wear through based on that additional weight being pressed onto the tire at speed. So Firestone went to the IndyCar series. They talked and they determined that um, they didn't want any one car to go past 30 or 35 laps to come in and change tires. So, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't the best show in terms of that. Um, I know some drivers were kind of split on that topic, um, but those were forced, you know, quote unquote, forced pit stops um, uh, when cars came in. The other unfortunate thing is that the track was prepped with, um, you know, whatever, PJ1 or whatever you want to call it, um, the the adhesive, excuse me, the adhesive compound uh, in both one and two and three and four was put down for the cup race in November of last year and prepped really nice, um, added multiple uh, groove racing for that um, particular race. That track sits um, and then IndyCar comes into town and physically you could see that the track was discolored um, in all of the turns, but essentially the adhesive uh, was not there anymore, nor did the track put down another layer for the IndyCar series. So very quickly what you had, um, I believe it was a one-day show for IndyCar. They had a practice in the morning, they had qualifying, and then they raced all in one day. And by the time they hit about lap 10 that day, they had five destroyed race cars because the uh, up the middle and upper grooves were not providing good grip. And actually, the drivers, from what I hear, were saying it was actually very slippery. So what that did is it forced everyone to run one groove, which was low all the way around the track, and it provided somewhat of a parade of a race. So from an entertainment standpoint, it wasn't the best. However, you know, if you want to put a silver lining on it, it also didn't force any super craziness and they made it out of there with anyone without anyone getting um, seriously injured. Um, but Sato, I think, was the fifth and final car that put it in the wall and he hit hard, um, picked the car up off the ground a little bit and grenaded it into turn one. Um, I'm sorry, that was that it was Sato, but that was during his qualifying lap. So, um, and Scott Dixon ended up winning the race. I think he won from um, outside pole position, so he was outside front row. Um, uh, that uh, that race was a Saturday night, and that generated uh, 1.285 million people, a million viewers. Um, my opinion, not the best. Um, the IndyCar series back in normal days uh, when it would debut in St. Pete and it was on the big network on ABC, that would get about a one, uh, a one rating, which was about 1.1 million people. Um, uh, this now uh, NBC, uh, this race was on NBC, it was on the big network, 
So uh, everyone was expecting to put up a really big number. Again, they were running unopposed to NASCAR or anything else. You know, granted, it was a Saturday night and people are starting to get itchy and starting to go outside more and more. So there probably wasn't a ton of people uh, inside watching television. But, you know, 1.2 million people, eh, um, probably not the best. So um, I don't know. These, these TV ratings, you should never sell against them. However, I think the executives at the team and the series level need to study them and figure out what they need to do to make these races draw in more people. And, um, you know, that's obviously uh, the $64,000 question. And I think people have been trying to figure that out for many, many years. Um, you know, we've talked about some ideas on this podcast in the past, but um, it's, it's a very daunting task. And um, I just really hope people aren't losing interest in racing. Um, and when I say that, you know, I'm talking about maybe 31, 32 year olds and younger. Um, that's always that's always the magic bullet is you need to keep creating a younger fan base so as they get older and they have a family and they have kids it starts this rotation of self-sufficient fan generation um, the NFL it's it's they they do a really good job of it and i'm not sure the nfl is doing it on purpose it just kind of happens organically because you have these cities that back their teams and it's not necessarily who's playing on their team but they're extremely loyal to their team brand and as they have their families and kids and their kids get older they are born into these families that support the panthers or the steelers or the giants and they're pretty much born into that and they don't know anything different. So they're going to cheer for the Giants as they get older. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen in racing. And I think that's it's its main Achilles heel. So it, it takes an extra thought process to figure out how to get more younger fans involved in the sport. Um, so moving on to a couple more, uh, you know, topics that has come out of uh, NASCAR over the past few weeks. Um uh, Bubba Wallace drives the 43 for Richard Petty Motorsports. He's uh, the only current black driver in uh, at the NASCAR Cup level. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, whether he likes it or not, uh, you know, these racial topics are going to get served right up to him. And a lot of people are going to want his opinion, which I think um, watching him uh, in the media, I think he's done a really, really good job. Um, he probably doesn't want to be put in that position. You know, he's probably like a lot of us where he's like, who gives a fuck what color you are? Let's just go race. However, that's not how the real world is, unfortunately. So he needs to um, share his thoughts and feelings on how things, um, you know, are happening through his eyes and, and his opinions. Um, he, he made comments uh, about the Confederate flag um, this has been um, somewhat of a hot, not somewhat, it has been a hot topic. Um, uh, previous, I don't know what year it was, it was within the last 10 years. Um, their NASCAR, conf or I'm sorry, Confederate flags have been fairly prominent uh, in the infield and in the parking lots during the tailgates at NASCAR races. Um, you know, again, that is a whole other uh, topic uh, in, of it in itself. 
And there was a lot of people that thought that flying that flag at a NASCAR race reinforced the stereotypes that that sport has. And um, ultimately, they were allowed. Um, and that was during the Brian France era. And um, I forget the wording of it, but they were basically saying, NASCAR was saying they didn't necessarily support it, but they weren't going to take that right away from people. And granted, you know, every race is raced on private property. They can make up the rules. They can make up whatever they want. So um, fast forward to now, um, their NASCAR was getting a lot of heat to ban the Confederate flag. I think Bubba made a comment or two about that, that he thought, yes, it should be banned. And then a couple days later, they came out and they banned the Confederate flag from being flown on property during race events. And, you know, for those of you that go on the cesspool of the Internet, we like to call Twitter. Um, you had a lot of people that were just showing their ass and showing their true IQ. And um, they thought that was and when I say they the minority of people, but they're obviously very loud um, and they're NASCAR fans. So, you know, this this needs to be studied as well. Um, they took offense to that and it was just it was it was like the world was exploding. Um, that's a problem. Like, uh, you know, again, I, th I don't think a lot of NASCAR fans understand how the financial model works. Um, even though it was a minority of people that were up in arms that, you know, NASCAR was taking away their right to fly the American or the, the Confederate flag. Um, and, and this was horrible. You know, sponsors make nascar go round they make motorsports go around that is the model that motorsports and nascar has chosen to follow and as long as you do that you need to be cognizant that sponsors are always watching and if you have a swath of your fan base that is having this type of reaction over a confederate flag which if you do your history doesn't really stand for the greatest thing um, and if you're a brand looking to invest in a sport, I'm not sure I want to get too close to that sport because they don't look too progressive. And, um, I think that's a slippery slope. Do I think they need to ban the flag? Fuck yes, absolutely. Like the fact it was even allowed to me is disgusting, but it's, it's to the point now where the fans the minority of fans are speaking up. They're showing their true colors. And from a sponsorship standpoint, that's not super appealing. So um, there's more positive in banning it than negative. But I think the negative is that um, in order to fit into the financial model and to have more money come into the sport, it needs to be a large group of people and they need to have a sport where everything isn't negative. And NASCAR has shown a history of having negative fan reaction over the smallest shit, which leads me to my next thing. They have moved the all-star race from Charlotte to Bristol. Like in about a month, they've moved it, which I think that has a lot to do with, you know, they might be having another lockdown here in the state of North Carolina coming up. And I think they move the race to preempt that. But anyway, um, 
NASCAR came out, I think yesterday, and said that for the NAS or for the NASCAR All Star Race, they're going to try something new, and they always try something new during the the All Star Race because it's kind of a throwaway deal. There's no points. They are going to move the number from the door to in front of the f- rear wheel, and um, you talk about people losing their mind over the placement of a number, like. It is embarrassing for me to be associated with that sport and that fan base and what they're doing over the dumbest fucking shit. It's unbelievable. Whether you move a number or not, who cares? The fact the car still has a number is irrelevant. There are transponders in the car that tell people where the cars are on track. They... All the car needs is a number on the roof so the spotters can see. And oh, by the way, most of the fans in the stands are up high, so that will help them identify the car. But the fact that the number's being moved 18 inches to the right and people are losing their mind blows me away. And I was happy to see that Steve Phelps actually made a tweet (laughs) saying something to the same effect like, we're moving a number over a little bit, and it's causing this much um, pain and agony. It's it, it is it's hard to understand. I'm sorry for cussing a lot on this one, but this I I just really think that people are the fans are missing the point when it comes to this stuff. When the sport is trying to make change, and it, and especially with this particular topic with the number being moved, you need to give value to the sponsors as much as possible to keep the money coming into the sport. If the sponsors walk away, the sport will go back to running um, Wednesday nights, not on television, and it'll end up like, you know, all the other short track programs in the world. People love that. That's great. And they're great live events that, you know, neighborhoods can go out and watch and support their local drivers. But no one's going to be making any money. No one's going to become famous. No one's going to live out their dream. So, just know that if you decide to go down a path where people and fans are like, well, fuck the sponsors, they need to understand that the sport will go away. That's it's just the pure dollars and cents of it. So um, I'm glad he came out and said something like that to show that, you know, the fans, again, probably the minority of the fans are, are not are not being smart and they're not seeing the bigger picture when people tune into television and these brands are paying money to these teams to have their brands on the car amongst other things they're also paying for but that's the one thing that has the most eyeballs on it they want their brand to be um, unmolested as much as possible when it comes to people seeing it on television and if moving a number over to allow more space for a brand to be shown is the way to go about doing it then do it it's it's to me, it's not even a fucking discussion. Sorry again for the F-bomb. <laughs> but I get I get riled up with this stuff because people don't understand how hard it is to find sponsorship in sports, in motorsports, period. That's something that, you know, maybe we talk about this on a future podcast, but people don't understand 
what it takes to secure sponsorship and not a trade for tools and not a check for five grand to you know run a sticker on a lower quarter panel like real money to fund a team and employ people throughout the year in order to to create a competitive program put a competitive driver in the car and go win races that takes cubic dollars that is a term i also learned working at the cup level cubic dollars and that comes from sponsors yes teams get money from tv yes teams get money from the the vehicle manufacturers um that is not enough it's not even close to being enough back in the day it used to be enough and sponsorship was kind of icing on the cake and that helped pay for you know the owner's plane and stuff like that that is not the case anymore the the amount of money that you still need to compete at a high level is off the charts if you want to be a top 20 car you're going to need 15 million dollars a year minimum um the you know if you want to be a top five car that's 25 30 35 million dollars a year and if you're in the sales room and you're going to a potential sponsor and you can generate um you know three million people on a tv broadcast every week well three million people that's a lot of people but let me look and what else i can spend my money on to get three million people or 15 million people you know, spend five minutes on YouTube, look at the top videos, and then look at the view counts on there. So if you want to go apples to apples, there's a lot of other things that people can invest their money in now to get more bang for their buck. That's why I'm very hard on NASCAR. That's why I'm very hard on the fan base. These guys have to have their shit together and play nice and not be assholes in order to attract the dollars. And if they want to be an asshole and they don't want sponsors, that's fine. But they need to understand the ramifications when the sponsors say, you know what, I'm done. I've spent my money, whether I've been here a year, 10 years, I'm out. People need to understand the ramifications of that. Their favorite drivers are not going to be racing anymore. That's it. And if they're cool with that, that's fine. But they need to realize that this is a financial uh, model that... When money's falling from the sky, it is the greatest model ever. But when the money dries up, it is the worst model. There is no equilibrium in a sponsorship-based sport, especially when the sport is so expensive to compete in. That's what this is all coming down to. That's what people need to realize. The teams know it. NASCAR knows most of it. You know, obviously they haven't, you know, been behind the scenes of operating a team and really seeing how much money that these owners are bleeding because there's probably exactly zero teams making any profit at the end of the year and and then you have something like oh let's move the car number back 18 inches and people lose their mind come on jesus um i don't know i think that's my rant (laughs) where i'm at I'm at 46 minutes now. I don't know. I'm um, so I uh, I'll I'll try my best to get these things out on a more consistent basis. And as things are unfolding in the NASCAR world, um, and IndyCar and NHRA and Formula One, um, you know, I, I didn't mention NHRA or Formula One during here during this time period. I think there's I think there's some big kabooms coming up with those series, and uh, I want to wait uh, a couple more weeks to see how those things unfold. Um, 
hopefully they make it out alive on the other end. Um, and um, I don't know. I ap- appreciate you listening. Uh, again, feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments or you want me to touch on something in the future. Um, have a good week and uh, we will chat later. <laughs>